This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Connecting with you this morning, but alas, you get my quarantine hair, and thanks to Facebook, we all get everyone's high school senior photos. Thank you, Facebook. Uh, but in all seriousness, I'm thankful for this technology uh, that allows us to connect together in this way and in this time. And uh, what, a, what an honor, what a privilege it is uh, to bring to you the word of God this morning. And so we're going to continue our Believe series as we've been going through John's gospel and we've been considering Jesus's life, his miracles, his death, last week his resurrection, and just looking at the totality of who Jesus is and what he did when he came to earth. And so this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the subject of his authority, Jesus's authority over all things. You know, recent days have reminded us of our desire to see authorities and leaders in a time of crisis to take control, to take the reins, and to lead us through. But these days have also shown us the fragility of earthly authorities as heads of state have fallen ill and as leaders on every level are dealing with all kinds of uncertainties in the wake of this pandemic that they don't always know what to do. And in the midst of all of that uncertainty and the lack of clear answers from those who are quote-unquote in charge, it can be tempting for us to believe and to feel that there is ultimately no one who is formidable enough to offer hope, peace, certainty, a steady hand, and to authoritatively govern all things, not just through this pandemic and what awaits us on the other side, but as we contemplate all of life's biggest questions uh, and what happens in life after death. And so in the midst of all of that, we recognize as followers of Christ that there is great hope for us who follow Jesus, that we know with certainty that Jesus is not shocked. He is not daunted, though we don't know what tomorrow may hold for us. We know the one who holds our tomorrow. And there's this sweet lining that exists in the midst of the chaos where the fragility of this world has been exposed. And we are forced to come to grips with the fact that Jesus is all that we've ever had anyway. Charles Spurgeon, the, uh, the famous 19th century uh, preacher, once famously said, I have learned to kiss the wave that dashes me against the rock of ages. And no doubt there is a silver lining, a blessing here for those of us who are followers of Jesus. We have been dashed upon the rock of our Christ, and he is standing. He is firm in all this. And so I'm aware that there are folks joining us today beyond just this Mill City Faith family, and I want to welcome you in as well as we look at these scriptures. And as you'll find in the link below to this video, there is a printable handout um, to follow along, to take notes with us in our uh, time together in the scriptures. And so if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me to chapter two of John's gospel. 
and, uh, and then be prepared to turn over to the end of chapter six in just a little while. See, if we are to say that Jesus has the position to govern all things, including the details of our very lives, how we conduct ourselves, what basis do we have to do so? What do the scriptures tell us about this? And what I want to do this morning is I want to follow a trajectory of thought that is laid out in John's gospel that consists of three factors for us to consider as we contemplate the rightful place that Jesus has to have all authority. And so first from where does his authority originate? Where does it come from? That's what we're going to contemplate. And then second, we will think about how we can have confidence in the legitimacy of his authority. And then once we've established those two foundational pieces, We'll then turn our attention to chapter six, where we'll see then how we are to respond in light of those realities. And so with that in mind, I invite you to let's look and consider the source of Jesus's authority. Turn to chapter two, and we will start in verse 13 together. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. And he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now there's a a lot going on in this passage, but as we consider Jesus' authority and what it, where it actually comes from, where is its source? I want to hone in on just a few key details here in these verses. John tells us in verse 13 that the Passover was at hand and that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I want you to imagine for a moment the buzz of the city, the buzz of Jerusalem, during the Passover feast. This is the high point of the Jewish calendar where Jews and non-Jews alike would come from many distances to worship, to remember what God had done for the Israelites in captivity. And so there was no social distancing going on here at the point of the Passover. And people are brushing shoulders. Everyone in the world, it would seem, was here in this place. And the Jewish leaders who would have been considered the authority on all things religion and spirituality of the day are looking on at the big gathering, and this is their show. And then Jesus enters into the situation. And in verse 14, we learn that something isn't quite as it should be. The scene that greets Jesus is not one of sincere and heartfelt worship towards God, but is actually a scene of selfish ambition 
and greed. The money changers are sensing an opportunity to pad their own pockets and to hijack this religious festival by setting up shop just outside the main temple where the non-Jews were allowed to worship. See, they knew that in order to worship God, one must have animals to come and sacrifice. And since many of these folks have traveled a long distance, they probably didn't come with sheep and with bovine in their rucksack. And so what an opportunity now they have to make a little bit of money and everybody gets what they want. In their mind, it's a, it's a brilliant scheme. Traveling worshipers, they were not gonna mind paying a few extra um, pennies to come and to collect animals rather than having to drag them all along on this long journey. And if they position themselves in just the right place, they will have droves and droves of customers coming right up to their table. It's a brilliant scheme in their minds. The only problem is the worship of God, the very purpose for this entire gathering is completely distant from their minds. So Jesus observes this situation and with an authority that the religious leaders have not seen, he decides to act. It says in verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. Now, if you're new to reading your Bible, or if your understanding of Jesus comes from cultural depictions of flowing locks and Jesus, you know, holding baby lambs, then this is probably a pretty shocking scene to you. Like, what is going on here in this account? How do we reconcile the belief that our God is love with the picture of our Savior flipping tables and whipping a whip? Well, first, it's important to note that Jesus is perfect. He is perfect. And all that he did and all that he said, he lived an entirely perfect life without any sin. And so we have to be very careful not to equate the anger that we see on display here with the anger that we may feel when someone cuts us off in traffic or beeps their horn unnecessarily. Let's think about it this way for a moment. Is it possible to be genuinely, legitimately angry and to be righteous in doing so. To be angry at child slavery, to be angry at abuse, to be angry at injustice. Emotions are never one dimensional. I was reminded of the reality that Emotions aren't always what they seem just a few weeks ago. Before they started shutting everything down, my family and I were at Disney when all of this started. And before we had to leave early, we were able to enjoy a, a few uh, days there in the parks. And uh, our oldest, our six-year-old daughter, last time she was at Disney, she was three, and so now she's six. She can go on all kinds of rides that she wasn't able to go on before. In fact, she meets the height requirements on pretty much everything. And so I was really excited to show her all these rides and to introduce her to some new things. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so she can physically go on these rides, but is she, is she really ready for some of these? They're, they can be intense. 
And so as I'm kind of contemplating that, I take her on one ride that I'll admit is pretty questionable. You know, we're waiting in the queue and the, the, the scene is just becoming more and more intense and I can feel her little fingers gripping my arm as we're going through the queue and it's just me and her. I'm like, oh, what is her mother gonna think of this? And finally she says the words that I was dreading for her to say. She said, daddy, I'm scared. I'm like, oh no, we're gonna have to leave and this is gonna create a scene. But then she looked at me and she said, but it's the fun kind of scared. And I just thought in that moment, well, good. That's exactly what this is supposed to be, right? Um, And just as my six-year-old did not have one-dimensional feelings, we can assume here that what's going on is not one-dimensional. That my six-year-old can be genuinely scared and still excited to experience the theme park. And it is perfectly plausible to assume here that Jesus can look on at the desecration and the greed that has replaced true worship and say, in effect, Father, I am angry, but it's the right kind of anger. For your glory is being mocked, and I will not stand by. Most of the time, the anger that we experience, it's reactionary, it's controlled by emotions. And then when our cooler heads finally prevail, we recognize, wow, we really were irrational in the way we were conducting ourselves. But that's not what's going on here. We have every reason to believe that Jesus did not lose his temper, nor was he out of control in his emotions. In fact, the other gospel writers record a separate account of Jesus doing this exact same thing of flipping tables in the temple. But rather than at the outset of his public ministry, it takes place just before his crucifixion, And all that to say, this may have been Jesus' first time at this particular rodeo, but it won't be his last. If Siri existed in the first century, you might even have seen him set a reminder for himself. Notification goes off and, all right, that's, that's today. So Jesus has made plans for this. He has decided that he is going to stake his reputation on being zealous for true worship in God's house. So what gives? Why would Jesus respond in this manner? And more importantly, where does Jesus come off acting in such a way? Well, in verse 16, Jesus says something that sheds some light as to what's going on here. It says, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't miss the significance of what Jesus has just communicated. He didn't have to psych himself up like a hood rat about to vandalize someone else's property. He isn't thinking irrationally or acting out of a misunderstanding. Instead, it is as certain and justified as a man who walks into his own home and sees that it is being violated, that thieves and robbers have broken in and they are violating his property. And with that kind of authority, he assesses the situation. And with his words and with his actions, he essentially says, get out. And he is 
righteous in doing so because of his connection to his heavenly father. Consider the source of his authority, the holy one of God defending the house of his father, undaunted to stand toe to toe with anyone who would mistakenly think that they have the right to violate it. By identifying God as his father, Jesus is stressing his unique position of authority to protect what belongs to God. And in the very act of doing so, he further validates his place as the prophesied Messiah. How does he do that? Well, look again with me at verse 17. It says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So without spending too much time here on this point, it's important to note that the Old Testament was filled with prophecies about the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. What would he be like? And what John shows us here in these verses is that after this account, years later, after Jesus has died and rose again, ascended back into heaven, his followers remember this moment in time And they saw it as proof that Jesus's actions were exactly in line with what King David had written in Psalm 69, 9, which says, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And so by flipping tables and driving out hordes, Jesus was demonstrating that he was actually the truer and greater David who, like Jesus, was passionate about God seeing rightly worshipped in his temple. He designed the temple of King David. He was excited about the idea of the temple. It was left to his son Solomon to build it, but he was passionate, zealous for the worship of God. And Jesus is the promised one that comes from the line of David, whose throne will be established and never end. And now Jesus is showing that he is fulfilling David's heart, David's prophecy about who the Messiah would be. I am asking you to consider the authority of Jesus and the source of it. And that being said, when we throw out the phrase, consider the source, what we are in essence saying is, what's the track record? What has this person done or shown about themselves that says, you know what, this adds up, this computes. How does this person make these claims, back them up? Where is the proof? And so, yeah, these verses here in chapter two demonstrate that Jesus at least believed that he had come from God, that God was his father, and that he had a unique and intimate relationship with God as father, but Is any of it verifiable? What evidence do we have to say that Jesus can be trusted on this? Well, if you look on with me, starting in verse 18, I want you to now consider the validity of Jesus's authority. Would you consider the validity? Starting in verse 18, read along with me. It says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things. Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years 
to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus does a thing, flips these tables, drives out the hordes, and the Jewish leaders, they take notice. This is not normal. This doesn't happen every day. And notice that they don't ask him, why did you do it, Jesus? Why? No, wouldn't that be the logical question? Like, why did you do this? Was this necessary? Unless, of course, they know deep down there was something obviously wrong about what was going on. But instead, they recognize that there is something about Jesus and the way that he is conducting himself that demonstrates he is different, right? He's not just some religious zealot, some guy who just came off the street. There is authority to what he is doing. And so they gloss over whether or not it was right or wrong for him to do it. And instead, they demand to know by what authority was it done? What sign do you show us? totally missing the fact that by demonstrating zeal for his father's house, Jesus has just given them a sign that he is the Messiah. But Jesus entertains their request. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And it's as if he's saying, how badly do you really want a sign? This temple that you cherish so much, tear it down. And if you want to see something pretty crazy, I'll raise it up in three days. Now, Jesus, we know, is ultimately not talking about the physical temple. He knows that they would never destroy the temple. They cherish it. They love it. And so ultimately, he is speaking about something else. John tells us in verse 21, he's speaking about the temple of his body. See, Jesus knows that while they would never dare remove one stone from that temple, a day is coming when they will seek to destroy him. And so he pivots the conversation. And by comparing his physical body with the temple, Jesus is making at least two connections between the function that the temple serves and how he himself is the ultimate fulfillment of that function. First, the temple is the place where God meets with man. And as we've seen just a few weeks ago, Jesus is God, a very God. And his coming to the people he created on planet Earth means that now God is meeting with people in an entirely new and unique way that far surpasses what the temple can provide. And then second, the temple is where sacrifices for sin are made. But Jesus outdoes the temple on this one too because he has come to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin once and for all, offered for all of those who would trust in it. But the sign isn't that his body represents the temple, though it does. The sign is what happens after his body is destroyed. Destroy my body. Take my life. After three days, it will be raised. 
the validity of Jesus's authority rests in the fact that he did not rest in peace. No, for those who trust in Christ, there is great hope here. Instead, he showed the world that the end of our story does not have to be growing old and slipping away or getting sick and taking a turn for the worse. Those who trust in the absolute authority of Jesus as demonstrated in the resurrection, there need not be an end at all. As I stated in the open, I I think it's safe to assume that this pandemic has caused a collective contemplation of our mortality. This is a unique time in which we've come to see there's a heightened awareness in the collective conscience of society that life as we know it can just be upended in a moment. And this heightened sensitivity, it's an opportunity for those of us who are followers of Jesus to display the hope that we have in him and the hope that we have in this resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is everything. It transforms our understanding of this life of death and what's possible for eternity. And as we looked at last week, Jesus gave physical proof to Thomas and his disciples and that through their testimony, we can have faith and believe those that were witnesses to the events of his resurrection, though dejected and scared after his death. I think some of the most powerful evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is that his disciples were scared. They were afraid for their lives. They had no hope. Jesus raises from the dead and everything is transformed. Now they're going out and they're proclaiming this gospel to the very people who put Jesus to death and they're not afraid of the consequences. Why? Because they know that their hope is sure. Many of Jesus' disciples would go on to meet very gruesome and untimely deaths themselves on account that they believed in the resurrection as an unchallengeable fact of life. And they would not stop proclaiming it. They knew it was true. And they knew that even if they were killed in proclaiming it, they would live. John tells us in verse 22, and they remembered this account after he had been raised and they believed the scriptures because of it. They considered the source of Jesus's authority as well as the validity of it based on what they had experienced. He said it would be raised in three days. It was raised. And they determined that it was a solid foundation on which to live and die in this life. But the beautiful thing about a life lived in Christ, and I want you to hear this this morning, is that we aren't asked to observe these things in some distant, abstract way. Yes, we believe in faith on account of their firsthand testimony, but the nature of that faith, it's a personal invitation It's an invitation from our Lord himself to trust him intimately and to know his peace and joy for ourselves. His spirit speaks to us. Even this morning, God is closer to us because he moves by his spirit and we can sense these things to be true. And he beckons us, come, listen, see the validity and the power that I have 
And so as I lay the foundations of seeing from the scriptures, both the source of the validity and validity of Jesus' authority, the source and the validity, we mustn't stop there. Instead, would you see you have a respective role to play in this process as you contemplate where his authority comes from, the fact that it is valid, and now you can respond in light of that. Consider, I invite you to consider the invitation to surrender to Jesus's authority. Look on with me in chapter six now. Flip over to chapter six. We're gonna start in verse 60, and we're gonna read this through to verse 66. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were and who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. In verse 60, we learn that many of those who are following Jesus have trouble listening to what he is now teaching and they, they turn away, they walk away from following after him. See, they liked the miracles, they liked the healings, they really liked that part, Jesus, where you turned all of those, those five loaves of bread and those two fish and you fed all the people, our bellies are full and they were really excited about what Jesus could do for them in a geopolitical sense that he was going to establish their kingdom the way they envisioned it here on earth and they were tracking with him all through that time. But then Jesus pivots and he starts talking about he is the bread of life come down from heaven and then he gets into this bit where he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And they're like, what is going on? Is this cannibalism? We, we don't understand. This is too hard. And they're taking these things literally. It's not the greatest church growth strategy, Jesus, talking about eating your flesh and drinking your blood. But he is using this graphic imagery to point them to the fact that what they think they've signed up for is not necessarily what it seems. They wanted the comfort and safety of this authority, this kingly figure who could lead them and protect them. They had no idea that the one that they've envisioned was going to remove Roman oppression, was going to suffer and die on a Roman cross. It is too much to think of a suffering savior whose body will be broken and blood poured out for the sake of their salvation. And what this shows us is that true discipleship is about so much more than just picking and choosing the things about Jesus or about Christianity that seem good to us, that sound good to our ears or make us feel comfortable. They fit into what we had in mind for our lives. This was true in the first century, and it's true for us today as well. True followers 
of Jesus must be willing to surrender to the authority of Jesus and to trust him no matter where he may lead, even if it is to places that we deem unsafe, uncomfortable, or unpopular, because we know that ultimately his authority is good, it is right, and he is leading us to something better than what we could desire for ourselves. Sadly, we learn in verse 66 that this is all too much for many of them. And what is certainly one of the saddest verses in the Bible, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. What these verses ultimately teach us is that it is entirely possible for a person to call themselves a follower of Jesus, to take part in Christian activity, to belong to the local church and never actually authentically surrender their lives to the good lordship of Jesus. And what we see happen here in this passage is that this big crowd that had followed Jesus in the good times is now instantly dwindled down to just a few. And Jesus is left standing there with his 12 disciples and what he says next is just as much for our benefit as it was for theirs. Look with me in verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Now it would be tempting to read that line from Jesus and think that he is somehow looking for validation or fishing for loyalty. Like, oh, so do you want to go away as well? But we would be very wise not to read it that way. Jesus knows his stock. He knows what he is worth. He knows what he has to offer. And he already knows who are his and who aren't his. The scriptures told us just a few verses ago that Jesus knows what's in them. He knows what they're thinking. And so he knows that those that remain, they want to believe, they want to follow. But in his graciousness, in his goodness, he actually presents them the opportunity to respond to his authority. He invites them, he extends the invitation to confess with their lips that actually, Jesus, we do trust you. We know you are the one who has the right and you are the one who will lead us well. Peter, with the wisdom that is beyond himself, never one to shy away from a chance to speak up, but he says in power something very significant in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter returns Jesus' question with a question of his own. And as we consider this invitation of Jesus that extends to us as well to surrender to his divine authority, it is something that we need to contemplate. Lord, to whom will we go? To what else is there to give us hope and certainty. Wherever you are this morning in your heart, you need to know that 
The same Jesus who is lovingly extending the question to his followers in this passage, he is extending that question to you as well. So as you take stock of where your hope lies this morning, not only in the face of COVID-19, but even as you grapple these bigger questions of life and what comes after, and can you even have eternal assurance in the midst of such uncertainty, I want to ask the same question of us this morning. To whom or what will we turn that can offer this kind of hope, that can offer this kind of peace and certainty if it's not Christ? To our health, it can deteriorate in an instant. To our houses or our possessions, they won't come with us when we die. To our investment portfolios, they change daily. And the only certainty that they present is the fact that uncertainty is just around the corner. Will we put our hope in our loved ones? They're a gift from God, but they cannot bear the weight of being our savior. No, instead, would you recognize the goodness of Jesus, the authority that he has over all things, though we do not understand this moment in time and all of the intricacies of why this disease is doing what it's doing and why we see all of the things that we see on planet earth, we can trust and we can know that Jesus is good. His ways are higher than our ways and he offers us a certainty and a hope that cannot be found anywhere else. There is nothing else that can present itself as formidable in the midst of all of these things. And so will you say with Peter, with the disciples, to whom else will we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Will you trust in faith that it is Jesus who created you, who loves you more than you love yourself? who's got you, who's got you in the midst of this, and that he truly does possess the words of eternal life. And so as we close, just think about this reality that we have the opportunity, we have the certainty to surrender ourselves to his good authority and that we can be reminded of or we can receive for the very first time this free and lasting gift that he offers us by the shedding of his blood, by being that suffering savior on a Roman cross, who in suffering and in death actually brings life and prosperity to all who would trust in it. Let's pray this morning. Father, we confess there is so much that we do not know. There is so much that we are powerless to stand against. But even in that confession, we also confess, Jesus, that you are good, that you are sovereign, that you are powerful, that you are working things together behind the scenes that we cannot even begin to comprehend, but we will stand in awe of when and if you choose to reveal them. Jesus, we thank you for the hope and the certainty that we have in this life, even as we see everything around us because of where your authority ultimately comes from. 
and because you have shown, you have proven with your words before the fact and in the act of defeating death itself, you have said, I am who I am. I am validated in the ability I have to conquer even death. And so Jesus, we count it a privilege to be asked the question, to be invited in to respond to the authority that you display. And so God, I do pray that hearts around this region, even now this morning, would be able to stop and reflect, to be able to press pause, even with the distractions around them in the room, with the kids playing on the floor and everything else that goes into it, to actually contemplate this reality that the God of the universe reaches in, not just through a screen, but down through the ages into our hearts and extends that invitation, will you surrender? And God, we, we pray that we would, and that in doing so, we would find life. It's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.